Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me is the medically ill-informed, cheese-loving lady of the manor, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, you'll be pleased to hear I nearly did wear a scarf today, but I couldn't find one. I don't know what to say, There's apart no- from on your neck be it, but also uh, I, I had an email from a friend and contributor, Sheng Yan, yes. in China, Yes, and she, she wanted to, to let me know that... Uh, in China, in the winter, women would not be caught dead without their scarves. Really? Yes. So that's a cultural thing, is it? Yeah. How do you feel about the snow this week? Has it been pathetic? Now you live in the wild. Well, I mean, I went. I, I was. I was on a train that cut through the Midlands, and I thought that was legitimate snow there. Yeah, that's where my family are from. Yeah. They couldn't come down to visit me on Sunday. Such was the snow. Not there. But when you're wandering around your tracts of land at, at, in where you live now, are you, are you, <laughs> there was no snow down there. There was no snow. It's there disappointing, no snow. isn't it? We, when you were in Italy, did you have proper weather? Yes, we had proper weather and See, proper we, seasons, and it's only really yeah. since I've moved out of London that I've been able to appreciate that seasons exist in this country They too. still do? Yeah. But do you feel that as we've got older, it, I, I don't want to talk about global warming, but it does feel that we don't get proper weather now. Yeah, the weather is definitely more erratic. And warm, and it is warm. I which, mean, which is even more baffling as to why when weather happens, yeah. all of the infrastructure in this country just <laughs> goes to you know what it goes to <laughs> shit is really what you're saying i'll say it goes to it goes to shit it does uh, but in italy did they get their act together yeah trains, I was kind of thinking... trains still run uh we live very close to madpinsa airport which is sorry when i say we my parents <laughs> i don't live there anymore uh very close to madpinsa airport which is the one of the main hubs and that is so rarely closed down even when even though italy even is not known for its or, and it's not known for its organizational apps. infrastructure italy is it no although there is that age old saying that the trains Ran on time during fascism. And they, they still do run on time, but I don't think we can uh, say that that has anything to do with fascism. That's good to hear. <laughs> uh, uh, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Do please review us on iTunes. This week, the inestimable Naomi Wolf has written an essay on the influence of Oscar Wilde on Edith Wharton two late Victorian writers of whom I'm rather fond. We also consider the legacy of Charles Darwin, the subject of a number of recent books, including an excoriating criticism from no other than A.N. Wilson, who was on this podcast just the other day. He says how wrong Darwin was. But who was more wrong, Darwin or Wilson himself? Claire Pettit judiciously weighs in. And we keep this theme of Victorian excellence with an essay by Dinah Birch on John Ruskin, the great polymath of the age. It would be wrong of me to sully the moment by repeating a scurrilous story about Ruskin. So I will do it that he was so horrified when he saw his wife naked for the first time because he didn't know of the existence of pubic hair, having learnt everything about female anatomy from Greek sculpture. He never slept with her and he got a divorce. So I won't share that story because it's so scurrilous and it may not be true. But it's the most famous thing about Ruskin. Have you heard that story? Yeah. And I started investigating it. it. There's there's a grain of truth in it. Does it come up in the books? I've read it in books, and he, he wrote a, a diary entry saying, uh, there's something about her person that appalls me. <laughs> and she had to write to her dad and say, he's, he, and, and again, she says, worse and worse. yeah, and she, she has to say something like, 
there was something about my person. She's, yeah, it was. <laughs> Shocking. Anyway, we might talk about that, although probably we shouldn't. I think that's it now. Yeah, we've done it. Well done. We might not associate Edith Wharton, the coolly realistic novelist of the New York aristocracy at the turn of the century, with Oscar Wilde, now best known for his flamboyant wit, his effortful dramas and the legacy of his wrongful imprisonment in the subsequent gay rights movement. But Naomi Wolf, the great American cultural critic, sees a connection. Wharton's interests by the beginning of the 20th century took her away from the more narrowly moralistic circles of America to the comparative liberation of the European aesthetic movement, in some ways epitomised by Oscar Wilde. Wharton's prose became influenced by Wilde, not always, as Wolfe notes successfully, as did some of her sexual politics. After all, strong women and homosexual men were both the objects of society's anxiety at the time. Her essay in this week's TLS is taken from a new book, Talking Bodies, Interdisciplinary Perspectives on Embodiment, Gender and Identity. And I'm delighted to say that Naomi Wolfe joins Thea and me on the line now. Naomi, welcome. I'm so delighted to be with you and speaking with you. What do we know about Wharton's stated views on Oscar Wilde? So this essay in this anthology, Talking Bodies, actually is from a version of my thesis that I wrote in Oxford. I went back to graduate school as a a very (laughs) middle-aged graduate student. Um, I finished my DPhil a few years ago at at Oxford. It was a DPhil that I had started in the the 1980s um, when I first went to Oxford. And um, it's very to me, it's it's an important kind of preamble to what I'm about to say to note that feminist theory didn't exist in the 80s in Oxford. And that's why I couldn't finish my thesis, among really? other reasons. And so I had to wait several decades for the institution to catch up with discoveries in understanding gender. Um, so I had a fantastic advisor, Stefano Evangelista, and he uh, focuses on the aestheticist period. And he wrote a very important book about how the Victorians had received um, images and discourse about the Greeks in relation to homosexuality, very influential book uh, for me. And so he sort of brought to my attention writers such as Vernon Lee um, and I cared about Edith Wharton as someone who, you know, was an American who was seduced and drawn to to Europe and to Britain. Um, you know, I identified with that as a kind of provincial young writer who also <laughs> went east and crossed the Atlantic uh, in pursuit of sort of more subtle versions of civilization. And um, he also, of course, oriented me um, to look more deeply at Wilde. And when I was looking more deeply at Wilde and uh, and at Whitman, um, who are the kind of uh, central characters in my new book, Outrages, which is coming out in about a, a year, I saw that they didn't just invent uh, what we would understand as gay male identity, a discourse around gay male rights, John Addington Simmons, who's also a very important character in my book, you know, is like the hero of inventing sort of our first modern discourse about uh, male homosexual rights. Um, But that they also, I saw, kind of created what would become a seed of understanding sexual liberation in general. And I saw in Wharton's work that she must have been influenced by this. Um, so that's what I picked up on in my essay. Do you think they would have agreed on sexual politics? Is this what this um, amounts to? Is it Can we be as crude as that? That when if they were explicitly to be asked about sexual politics, they w- there would be a, a meeting of minds? I mean, there's a generational difference between them. Of course, when Wharton wrote some of her most radical texts, like Summer, uh, a very blazingly feminist text about a a young 18-year-old woman, very timely for what's going on in the news right now, Charity Royale, who rebuffs a sexual assailant and who is determined uh, when she's seduced and abandoned and left pregnant to bear her child and go into prostitution if she needs to. And, you know, I see definite echoes from Wilde, but it's, you know, Wilde had been dead for over a decade by the time she wrote this. So I do ask myself, it's a very provocative question to me, a very alive and important question, what would a female sexual liberationist or a feminist, what we would call a proto-feminist like Wharton, have asked the shades of Whitman and Wilde at that time about 
um, it, it, sort of bringing their vision of sexual liberation and, and transcendence uh, through acknowledging desire, how would they have um, supported women in interrogating it, and especially the conundrum of heterosexual women, because at that time, uh, you know, if, if a woman heeded the call of to greater freedom and greater sexual self-expression that, that is implicit in the work of Whitman and of Wilde, terrible things could happen to her. You know, there there wasn't reliable contraception. There often wasn't safer legal abortion. Um, there were horrible venereal diseases. Uh, women who were sexually active could lose their children, um, you know, if they weren't sexually active in conventional ways in the event of a divorce. Uh, so I, I, I'm very haunted by the way I think that Wharton and other, you know, other women, early kind of pioneers of sexual autonomy and, and, and political autonomy, you know, so, so longed for um, kind of a way to carry forward this Wildean vision into into their own lives. But but it, it doesn't really translate literally. Right. It, it, I mean, these men suffered enough in their own lifetimes. But there is a Wildean perspective in summer. I mean, you, you do a great line in your piece where you say the proper choices, those of forced chastity, forced marital servitude to a bore or merely generalised hypocrisy are morally dirtier than a life of prostitution lived with inner integrity. And that has the feel of a Wildean apasu almost. There's sort of a, certainly a sense of Wildean morality that it's better to be dignified in squalor than sort of squalid in dignity. Right. I mean, Wilde is such an extraordinary feminist. When you take a, a second and third look at him, you know, his leading characters in the plays of, you know, 1892, 1893, uh, Lady Windermere's fan um, and a woman of no importance, they are not only strong women, he keeps going back and going back to this notion of a woman who has sexually transgressed, who, you know, should be considered an outcast by the hypocritical norms of conventional society of, of his day, you know, the 1890s, the early 1890s, and whom he nonetheless displays as having integrity and even heroism um, that kind of stand in, in critique of those norms. So it, it is a Wildean um, project for her to uh, show a woman, Charity Royale, who has been, you know, she's working class. I mean, it's even more radical. She's barely educated. She's barely literate. She's been violated. She's been seduced and abandoned. She's pregnant and she's considering a life of prostitution. And Wharton categorically portrays her as this kind of Nietzschean heroine. It's extraordinary. And it's definitely, I definitely see her there as the heiress to Oscar Wilde and to a project that Oscar Wilde you know, initiated. The ending of that novel there, it's its peculiar in a sense because it's almost as though Wharton gave up. What was she doing in that end? What what, what happens there? Well, it's its so heartbreaking and I'm, I'm glad you asked because it really makes you take a big picture look at how feminism has sort of transformed our narrative possibilities, even in fiction. Wharton does, as you point out, kind of give up. I mean, she envisions this incredible kind of breaking away of this young woman from the strictures that surround her on all sides. But then in the end, where can she go? There is no there is no escape. Like in real life in 1917, there was no real escape for an unmarried woman who's about to have a baby who doesn't have skills, doesn't have an education or, or a support network to speak of. So her own mother is dying. The implication is she, Charity's own mother, is dying from having been ravaged by her life as a prostitute or a sexually loose woman. Um, she doesn't have a home. She doesn't have anywhere to go. She has no money. So she finally marries her abuser. She marries lawyer Royale, uh, this older guy who drunkenly tried to break into her room and assault her, you know, earlier. She marries this sort of incestuous, creepy, um, you know, would-be protector uh, who is described in the most, in terms of absolute revulsion by Wharton throughout the book. Um, and she marries him. And, and so Wharton kind of falsely almost, I mean, it rings very uh, falsely, describes, tries to kind of describe him at the end as if he has redeeming qualities. But it is, you know, reader, she married him. I mean, it does, the narrative just gives up because there there are not alternative endings for women in 1917. And the ending doesn't feel um, authentic, you know, that she 
a, a, a firebrand like this is going to be fulfilled or happy or have any sort of destiny that we would want to identify with in, in a marriage of this kind to this abuser. Um, but it, it just makes you think about like fiction and how uh, the stories can't continue in, in ways that we would long for them to as readers until there are political outcomes that allow stories to continue in ways that we identify with and long for. If for Wharton her writing was was social criticism uh, levelled against you know punishing societal norms, was there a risk that these stories, and in fact were these stories read that way by her, her public, or did they tend to be muffled or kind of twisted to suit the more moralistic aims of the of the era, you know, this is what awaits promiscuous women, and mm. they should be grateful for the for the succor that they that they get. I suppose I'm thinking as well of uh, of the fact that the Age of Innocence won the Pulitzer. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, she Wharton couldn't have told the truth about she couldn't have um, t- created a more an ending with more integrity at that time. I, I I do think that when women did try to write truths, even in fiction, um, that went beyond what was acceptable, and in some ways, you know, that went beyond validating the conventional narrative that you know she might have struck out, but she has to come back to home base, back to domesticity. Uh, I don't think that that those writers' careers really could survive. I mean. Uh, she is and Wharton, you know, had additional burdens because she was of a very elite social class um, and women of that social class certainly, you know, were not the renegades that they were in the more bohemian uh, circles, you know, even in the teens in the United States, which did have a bohemia at that time, actually. Um, so I, I agree with you. Wharton wouldn't have been the celebrated society writer that she was if she had been more uh, overt or clear or extended her critique any further. But that said, I do think she, like Wilde, there's lots to read between the lines. I mean, you know, my, my new book, Outrages, is about censorship and about the origins of censorship in the 19th century in Britain, as well as the origins of male homosexuality as a crime, civil crime, as opposed to ecclesiastical crime. And we have to understand Victorian Britain the way we understand, like, Russia before the fall of the wall, it was not an open society. You know, we we misread backwards when we assume it was a condition of free speech, free publication. There were serious penalties for uh, obscene literature, and there were serious problems that writers got into in Britain when they violated um, very, you know, increasingly rigid social norms after the passage of, of certain laws in 1857 and 1861 that um, created penalties for speech. And what my research finds is that up and down Britain, booksellers were being prosecuted and imprisoned for at hard labor for sentences of, you know, three to six months for distributing obscene literature. Print runs were being confiscated. Publishers were getting in trouble, not just booksellers. Writers were getting in trouble, you know, long before um, Wilde's famous trial. So there were penalties for outspokenness in Britain, you know, and in America. And, and yet, I suppose, Naomi, that the, one of the striking things about Summer that you've talked about, you know, it was published in 1917, so 100 years ago. And there are still parallels here, aren't there? That, you know, this is a, about female victimisation. It's about a woman who, who, is, who is assaulted and has to stand up for herself. And we're living in an age where that process is not as open and straightforward as it should be, where women who, uh, in the last three months, who who talk about assault, and they're often the subject of criticism, they're often the subject of suspicion rather than the person who did the assault. I'm really glad you raised that because the issue about silencing women who otherwise would come forward and tell stories about sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual molestation, it's not just that we lose the chance as a society to convict criminals. It, we also lose, as a literary tradition, the ability to continue narrative where it needs to go. I mean, something that's very striking to me as as a woman writer is that very few memoirists or even novelists um, have told, have been able to tell the truth about the kind of routine experience, or not, it's never routine, but the utterly common experience of being raped or being assaulted or being sexually molested in childhood or in adolescence that every woman I know has experienced. I mean, I don't know a woman who hasn't. And so 
it's not just kind of a, a blessing that these secrets are coming out for political and social purposes. It's also a blessing for literature because we have not had those stories. You know, the stories have been told wrongly, you know, by Freud or secretly in letters by Virginia Woolf. They haven't been integrated into our own memoirs, our own um, novels. You know, when people do write about it, like even in fictive form, Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison have done so, for instance, we can't almost get enough of of these narratives because there is so much suppression of speech, so much suppression of stories. And when you can't tell these stories, you really can't grow in a not a natural way as a writer or as a woman. Naomi, thank you very much, Idian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. The literary suppression of voices that tell of honest experience is a is a is a cultural problem, not just the the, the literal suppression of women who experience. Well, I mean, I suppose it's a broader game of catch up, isn't it? Because we've still only just accepted that women novelists that you know that domesticity and and women's concerns and in inverted commas are acceptable material to to be writing about at all. Yeah. So this is the next step. And let's hope it happens. Yeah. Yeah. From Oscar Wilde to Oscar Wilde's tutor, we turn now to John Ruskin, the Victorian era's foremost art critic and Oxford's first Slade Professor of Fine Art, a thinker whose diverse legacy has, as Dinah Birch explains in this week's paper, allowed him over time to be taken up by a motley crew of enthusiasts who can claim that Ruskin's work supports their own thoughts on questions on almost anything, from art education to the environment. Now, he never really belonged in the academy, at least not in an orthodox sense, and so he remains to a degree outside of it. His natural reader is one who feels at odds with power in the establishment. Those drawn to his huge and varied body of work tend, though, to share an interest in the practical aspects of life and thought. They find a guiding light in this man who, to quote Birch, never really believed that literature of any kind could change the world. We need people who make things painters, builders and craftsmen, they meant as much to Ruskin as any writer. So what has this Victorian gentleman to tell us today? Dinah Birch joins us on the line to tell us now. So in his time, Ruskin was this huge figure, uh, metaphorically speaking, because I think he was, in fact, quite small and slight in in real life. Um, And though he died in 1900, his influence remained very strong right up until the First World War. So what were the main things for which he was known, you celebrated or criticised, and why did the First World War change that? So he was known for a number of reasons. He was an art critic, um, and he was known particularly for his writing on landscape painting. He was, of course, the great apologist for the greatness of the painting of Turner. Um, but also his own contemporaries, pre-Raphaelite art, he was closely associated with that movement, Um, He was known also for his association later in in his career with arts and crafts. William Morris was was very influenced um, by Ruskin. But he was also known as um, a social reformer through his Guild of St. George, which he personally founded and supported in the early 1870s and beyond. He was known as an architectural historian, primarily, but not exclusively, through his work on Venice, the Stones of Venice, um, mid-century work, which had an enormous influence on the way in which people saw not only um, Venetian architecture, but also um, the British place in a European context. Um, so there are, I, I could go on. In fact, there are, there's a whole range of reasons for his influence and for the enthusiasm and the loyalty and the commitment of people who read Ruskin, cared about Ruskin and tried to implement his ideas in the world. And so what are his reasons, what, what are the reasons for his dwindling legacy after the First World War? Um, I think that that um, with the advent of modernism and the consequences of modernism and also the consequences of the war itself, um, there was a reaction against what came to seem the overweening moral drive of the great Victorian writers. There was a sense in which people like um, Ruskin, Carlyle, George Eliot, those 
hugely productive and morally assertive writers were at odds with a period that, that was trying to find a new kind of moral compass. And there's also the, the very fact of the scale of his activities and the somewhat daunting range of his writings seemed at odds with a cultural aesthetic that, that valued succinctness, brevity, sharpness, edge. He just came to seem ponderous. The thing I was struck by him is how, what a democratic figure he was, which you think would fit, yeah. fit a bit of the spirit of the age. He didn't talk down to people. He believed in, in talking plainly to people and sharing um, knowledge with with anyone of any background. In yeah. some ways, he feels like a very 20th century character in that yeah. respect, the rise of democracy, the rise of socialism and all of that. Yeah. I can see him being part of that in a way. Yeah, and I, I think that that never ceased to be true. It's just that there were um, felt to be barriers to reach that kind of personal connection. I mean, I do think that one of the things that, that distinguishes Ruskin's voice, you know, throughout this huge range of writing and, and, and activity is that sense of a personal and direct connection, which I think makes him unusual among that group of Victorian sages. Yeah. He doesn't assume that the people that he is talking to have been to Oxford or Cambridge or enormously well-read or have a certain kind of social or indeed economic standing. Um, and I, th- I do think that that is one of the reasons for the kind of diversity of his following, both in Britain and indeed overseas, because he had a, a huge following overseas in America, for instance, great influence on um, the early thought of Gandhi. So there's it a great line just in Britain. There's a great yeah. line you quote in the in the piece: "The greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something yeah. and tell what it saw in a plain way." Yeah, um, that's and that's right. in some way very anti the the sort of laborious constructions of the Victorians. You know, if you read some yep. middle Victorian writers, it can be sort of an yeah. eye aching process. And and he's someone yeah. who wants to say, and but talk about art and talk about beauty, but in a way that people can readily understand. Yep, in a very clear and direct way. And in fact, you know, in spite of what I've been saying about the sheer scale of his output, he's not difficult to read. No. He's much easier than, say, Thomas Carlyle, you know, who is not now, um, for the 21st century mind, um, an easy read, though he has many rewards. He's not a particularly nice man, though. I I don't think you'd want to have dinner with Thomas Carlyle, but you might... I don't know about that. Really? (laughs) He always strikes me as a... very interesting. He always strikes me as a bit of a... He's a bit high. He's got some fairly rancid opinions in, in, on the margins, Carlyle, doesn't he? Well, yes, that's true. But then rancid opinions don't necessarily disqualify oh, someone as an interesting that, dinner. That, Dinah, yeah, that's, a very, that's a very good point. I just find there's something amiable about Ruskin. <laughs> yes, um, there is. There uh, is something that, that, that commanded, certainly in his lifetime, and I think beyond, a kind of affection among mm. his readers. Um, and I think that once you do become someone who knows Ruskin, has, has, has spent some time reading Ruskin, it's, it's very hard to avoid that sense of a, a personal loyalty to this huge, rich mind. And partly because he never hesitates to confess his own deficiencies, his problems, you know, for all that authority with which he speaks. He knows himself to be flawed. And in a sense, that's part of what he is talking about. Because uh, at the bottom of many of his arguments, this is where he's so different, say, from Matthew Arnold. It's a sense that, that our imperfections, our faults, our failures, our deficiencies are the basis of what might make us great. Your description of him in, in general is very much as, as a man for our time. Of his extensive oeuvre, you, you pluck out his political economy unto this last, from 1860, as particularly relevant to us now, I suppose, in the wake of the financial crisis and the horror of Grenfell Tower and the ongoing Brexit toing and froing. Can you, can you tell us about that text? Well... I think that that what drove that text was Ruskin's reaction against what seemed to him the increasing power of a broadly utilitarian model of political economy, which left out the social bonds, our responsibilities to each other. And I think that the deepest reasons for that um, 
did lie in his formation in Romantic literature and in evangelical Christianity. He was not a Christian believer at the time that he was writing the great political texts of the 1860s, including unto this last. He had lost his faith. But what he had not lost was that sense which lies at the heart of of, um, evangelical belief, that we each have a personal and individual responsibility um, to our own spiritual progress, but also to the welfare of others. So he wanted a model of political economy that, that, that would respond um, to that, what seemed to him that, that first priority of our um, human relations in political terms, in economic terms, in social terms. Um, that's what seemed to him to matter. There's a, there's a quote that you give which is, uh, I think would stand very much for the posturings of economists in the face of the misery that some of their policies can cause. He said, among the delusions which at different periods have afflicted mankind, perhaps the greatest, certainly the least creditable, is modern economics based on the idea that an advantageous code of action may be determined irrespectively of the influence of social affection. The the idea that you can can work out on paper what is a good economic model without looking at the the real-life consequences. Absolutely. And that, it seems to me now, does feel very contemporary. Mm, you can see so clearly why someone like Tony Benn would, would be a champion of Ruskin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Who was he? Mm. Yeah. And indeed, he was very important to the formation of early British socialism. Not that socialists were, in any kind of formal sense, Ruskinians. Um, and and um, the whole question of what a follower of Ruskin might really be um, <laughs> is, is another and, and different question. But the broadly defined approach to the way in which we should implement political theory, um, I think, was quite heavily influenced by that Ruskinian model. And many early British socialists, including William Morris, I mentioned earlier, were students of Ruskin, were very familiar with his work. Can we talk just briefly about Ruskin's relevance to the the environmental movement? Because that's probably, Mm. nowadays, that's one of the, the, the... the most common inroads, I suppose, to his work. Yeah. He wrote extensively, particularly perhaps in Modern Painters, but in other books too, about our relations with the natural world, clouds, leaves, mountains, trees. And he writes in great detail, very engagingly, about how how we should respond to the natural world. And as a consequence of that intimacy of our relations um, with nature... He argues that we have a responsibility not only to each other as human beings, but also to the natural world um, which sustains and feeds us. So he was, of course, living and writing in a period of of, um, huge industrialization. So he argues rather before other people had noticed what was happening, that it was important to take responsibility for clean air, that it was not necessarily a good thing to fill rivers with industrial effluence, um, that that we needed um, to be careful um, before we destroyed landscapes, forests, um, pastures um, that that seemed to him integral, um, not only to an aesthetic appeal of the landscape, but to the way in which we could, could grow and prosper as human beings. Fairly enough, your piece follows immediately one, talking of the natural world, we've got a big piece on Darwin oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the paper. And actually, when you read, the, the, it goes on sort of page three, four, five, if you read it in one sweep, there do seem to be parallels between Ruskin and Darwin. This sense of the tangled bank, which is a sort of the great Darwin metaphor, feels very Ruskinian, the idea yeah. of the importance of... Uh, the natural world and also this sense that you can blunder with your theories to get at a better truth and the, and the, the journey which you take is as important as the end you get to. Do, mm. do, do you think they were, there is a sort of linking between Darwin and, and Ruskin? Yeah, there are many connections. In fact, Ruskin was quite rude about Darwin. <laughs> he was by no means a Darwinian. He was not sympathetic to the Darwinian model of, of that kind of evolutionary progress um, that of course, Darwin's thinking was pioneer in developing. You know, and I think this goes back to the point that I was making about his intellectual origins in um, evangelical Christianity and in Romanticism. He wanted 
to conceive of a natural world that rested on a balance that had been maintained over millennia since the beginning of time. Uh, so he was quite troubled, I think, by that notion of instability and transience. But having said that, I do think you're not wrong um, to perceive those connections between Darwin and Ruskin. There was mutual respect between the two men, um, but, but Ruskin did not accept the Darwinian model. So we might have had them both at a dinner party quite fruitfully. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd rather I'd rather be with yeah. them and Thomas Carlyle by now. You've not you've not went me over to <laughs> no. that. I'd go I Ruskin, think... Darwin, then Carlyle in order. But if you really read Carlyle, not that we're talking about Carlyle, no. you do find you know that that energy and that kind of sense he's very sensitive to human suffering, Carlyle, and that's always a winning characteristic. I feel like you're talking yourself into another piece here, Dinah. Yeah. <laughs> Justify the ways of Carlyle to me. I would love I'd love that piece yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dinah, thank, <laughs> thank you so you much. much. That's, that's so nice to speak to you. Uh, it's a real pleasure. All these great Victorian writers, including Darwin, I, I suppose, they're very um, liable to damaging quotation, but Thomas Carlyle wrote a pamphlet in the middle of the century called Occasional Discourses on the Negro Question, which he just republished 10 years later by hardening the G's in the word Negro, and it was basically how black people are subhuman and why slavery is justified. And he said he had all sorts of opinions like that, um, which were not uncommon to the time, but when you read them in in the cold light of day, he doesn't come across as a particularly nice chap in a way that I'd like to think Ruskin does, but I mean, I bet someone somewhere will find a quote where he says something unacceptable. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, w I was quite interested to see, as you said, reading this piece in the context of the whole uh, paper, how, you know, the fact that Oscar Wilde was a student of, of Ruskin's, how that kind of idea of the individual, the individual self-creation... Uh, in the context and often against the the, the backdrop of, of society as a whole um, comes together and how with War, uh, Wharton as well you've got you've got her kind of concept of uh, you know noblesse oblige and yeah. she thought that that was uh, in large parts to blame for uh, the disintegration of, of, of society and people not looking after each other anymore and here we have Ruskin doing the same but in an even broader context where we're, we owe a responsibility to the world, to the environment and so he has his students and I think Oscar Wilde was included among them uh, who, who he set to work on, on building this, this road, repaving a road uh, to aid in flood relief. And you just think, no wonder they love their professor. I mean, what a, what a great way. I mean, fine, hard labour. But yeah. Yeah, you had to get used practice, to that. Yeah, yeah, practice had to get used to that. Uh, it's a good dinner party then. You have what this in this week's TLS. Wharton, <laughs> Wilde, um, Ruskin and Almost Darwin. only authors whose, whose surname begins with a W. Yeah, exa yeah exactly. But there's, uh, it's a Victorian <laughs> it's dinner a party. Theme. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, let's keep with the story of Darwin, shall we? Our modern relationship with canonical figures can be a difficult one, as we have seen, often filled with the irreconcilably competing desires to debunk and to lionise. So, while the history of science is no place for icons, as Claire Pettit notes, it's nonetheless filled with figures of greatness whose work stubbornly continues to govern our thinking today. This is the case even if that work has turned out not to be entirely correct. Darwin was wrong! says A.N. Wilson in Charles Darwin, Victorian Mythmaker, as if this might be sufficient to topple him from the heights of our estimation. Not so, says Pettit. Darwin, Darwin may well have been wrong. Most scientists are, most of the time, wrong by this measure. And Darwin would not have been surprised that some of what he called his conjectural parts turned out not to work. He would have redirected the research question and started again. This is how science inches forward. Darwin, of course, spent a lifetime thinking slowly, allowing his ideas, as it were, to evolve. And such progress is made not only by error and trial, but also by collaboration and the fusion of ideas. This is another reason why the great man approach to science fails. Nobody ever has a monopoly of truth. Such a notion, says Pettit, is for psychopaths and bad guys who want to take over the world in movies. Science is a developing conversation and a negotiation with the changing world. Darwin remains one of the most important voices in that conversation, even when he's being shouted down, misinterpreted or ignored. Even by A.N. Wilson. Claire Pettit joins the <laughs> me today. Claire, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Uh, you've reviewed four books about uh, Darwin of differing quality. Is there still lots to argue about? Oh, Darwin, yes. Yes, I think so. I think this is going to go on until the end of time. Why, yes. why is that? What makes him such a sort of fertile it's, area? It's, well, that's it. It's partly his fertility, I think. I mean, he just produced so many ideas on so many different subjects. So, you know, you, you can be thinking about sexuality. You can be thinking about genealogy and kind of generation in a sort of more historical way. You could be thinking about um, biotech stuff now as well. Um, And neurology, which is all cutting edge at the moment, and the way the brain works and fires and synapses and so on. All of that still goes back to Darwin. And he kind of resists taxonomy, ironically. There's a moment in the piece you call him a racist who hated slavery and a sexist who admired female intelligence. I don't think he's so unusual in that, though. I mean, I wrote a book about David Livingstone a few years ago, and I I do sort of see quite obvious parallels there. I mean, Livingston, again, is... He's working a little bit later than than Darwin, so he's even more, in a sense, plugged into that kind of nasty biological racism, which is becoming more and more pervasive in the 1860s, 1870s. But he hates slavery. He spends his life fighting slavery. Um, Similarly, you know, Darwin with his Unitarian background, very, very kind of liberal background, really does not like the idea that any Christian soul, black, white or brown, would ever be irredeemable or treated as irredeemable. Because we've, so. we've been talking in this podcast actually about uh, Ruskin. Well, yeah. and yes, the, and, and, another one. And yes. that who follows yes. your uh, piece uh, by Dinah Birch follows yours. And the idea of would you want to have a dinner dinner party <laughs> yes. with them? Do you think Darwin is a nice man? You, you know, you read quite a lot about him. Yes. Do you feel that this is a decent a Decent, decent yeah. I think, certainly. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think we always come back to the, the ultimate redemption, really, of Darwin is how just how very sweet he is with his children and how nice he is to his wife. I mean, there, there is a sort of domestic affection there which makes you feel that this person is actually attentive to others able to engage with others emotionally somehow quite functional um, in ways that I'm not sure Ruskin was. But well, that's, but that's Dyna, possible. Dyna might get cross with me. No. <laughs> well, we had we had a mild disagreement about Thomas Carlyle, which, uh, which uh, I don't like. Whoa, Thomas Carlyle. No, 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 no. That's right, isn't it? He wrote, he wrote, he wrote this oh, piece good about Lord. no terrible man. Yes, a really terrible man. Yeah. Yes. Dyna yes. stood up for him. A bit. Well, a brilliant man. Yeah. But, but, but I wouldn't want him in my house. No, exactly. No. That's no. exactly what I feel. Um, you talk about uh, Darwin and sexual selection. Evelyn Richards has written a mm, book about great it. Great book. Um, could you explain to two non-scientists? what sexual selection is in regard okay, to Okay, that makes three non-scientists. Well, that's good, that's even better. <laughs> um, there are standards of non-scientists, yes, which, <laughs> I think there's grades of this. I suppose that Darwin was 
one of the questions that he mulls over uh, and he talks about endlessly right the way through his very long career is the what he calls the mystery of sex. He doesn't he doesn't really understand. This is why Darwin's so great. He asks these kind of fundamental questions. So he sort of sits down and thinks, why do we have males and females? Why? You know, why don't we just all be hermaphrodites and reproduce sort of asexually? Why not? That would be more efficient in some ways. And that's a question that animates him all the way through his career. But it's really only when he begins to think about display and uh, the idea of attraction. And significantly, actually, it's after he's married himself. And I think there is a kind of awakening there, in a way, to kind of ideas about sexual desire and sexual attraction. Um, Because I think it was a sexually quite good marriage from what one can gather. I mean, who knows? Because (laughs) one should never, ever try and peek around other people's bedroom doors. But it it seems to me it was an affectionate marriage and it was probably quite sexually active marriage. They certainly had a lot of children. Um, And I think during his marriage, he began to think more and more and more about sexual reproduction because he was engaged in it so heavily himself. Um, And he began to see, to his perplexity, that it was the males of the species that had the most beautiful adornments and ornaments and colours and, and, and general kind of you know, glitz and, and bling. Um, and the females tend to be rather dowdy and brown. This is a general rule. And, of course, the peacock is the prime example, which he, he picked upon the peacock and the peahen as, as a sort of prime example. Now, he realised that peahens must really be very attracted to those sexy peacock tails but he couldn't quite get further than that he was also very interested in fashion i like him for this as well he was he was really quite engaged with a kind of female world of fabric and color and fashion um he had a very strong aesthetic sense darwin actually and when you read the voyage of the beagle he's he's wonderful on descriptions of kind of sunsets and clothing and he's very very visually kind of aware and his argument is that the males of the species are displaying in order to demonstrate in order to attract and to attract over other males so to be actually it's a, it's a competitive display yeah and why was that such a contentious argument well i think the problem which darwin actually just couldn't quite look at for a bit is really are women actually choosing are they allowed really to choose their male partners so i mean to what extent then was he i mean it sounds like he was shaped or what he was writing was was shaped by his his knowing his reader and what that his reader was willing to accept at that stage yes and john murray his publisher was very good at um at toning him down as well he also published livingston and told livingston to take all the bottoms and 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 (laughs) out of his books um so there was a kind of censorship that went on i mean murray was a very active editor very impressive editor i think um and and he helped him a lot in terms of sort of shaping this for a public because there's a bit even in the origin of the species where he could go to a logical conclusion and remove God from it, really, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's this endless process. And then when you read it... But his wife had shut herself up in a room with a headache, you know, saying, it, if you do that, darling, I'm not sure I And so stay. in the end so, it becomes this, we're progressing, we're, we're kind of slightly wiggishly proceeding yeah. to a better end and God starts it and God yeah. oversees it. All. And we're not in it, of course, because he doesn't mention human beings in The Origin of Species. So or, it, they, yeah, he talks about them in The Scent of Man is when he starts thinking about the human. Really, yeah. he, he carefully avoids the human in that book. But because still, then he would have had to, sorry, exactly, he would have had to make the human yeah, an animal and especially exactly. the woman would yes, have to be an animal exactly, as well. Exactly, yes, and that's a terrifying... And he had to have killed God. So, I mean, he could, yeah. have, he could have gone further. Uh, should we talk about Aaron Wilson's book? Uh, he says Darwin was wrong... You say, very politely, Wilson is often wrong. I'm glad you thought I was polite. Oh, it's hugely polite, I think. <laughs> What's the problem here? I mean, it's a deliberately polemical well, it's, it's book, It's very it? deliberate. He's, del- he's, he's, trying, to, he's trying to annoy And it people. succeeds in that. So, you know, maybe we should just say it's a great success. <laughs> well, in under- in A.N. Wilson's sort of terms, I think it is. I underlined um, your line, uh, weird triumphalist glee. Yes. To- yeah, there's a lot of weird <laughs> triumphalist glee, I thought. Yeah, he's very enjoying himself. And it's a project in a way, isn't it? I mean, it's. I think we could all do it. We could take Marx. We could take Freud. We could, you know, we could, we could all write this kind of book. It's not difficult to do. So what's his problem with it? He's basically trying to say, you think Darwin is great. Here are the ways in which Darwin wasn't great. Yes, yes. Um, and is that fair in any way? No, well, it, it, fairness is perhaps not quite the right way of approaching it. It may be just, but it seems to me to be utterly ahistorical in terms of sort of thinking about how ideas are are born and, and, and generate and how they change over time. And Darwin, you know, as I said before, has a long career, so his ideas change a lot over time. I don't think that really Wilson gives much thought to that. In fact, there's a lot of Darwin that doesn't come out at all. He doesn't really talk about descent of man, he doesn't really talk about sexual selection. He's really only interested in the origin. And the joy of Darwin as a reading your piece really brought this home to me is that 
It's about how science should work. He throws out hypotheses. He tests yeah, them. He's great. He 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 doesn't. He's not wed. It doesn't sound not like not at he, all wed. And he's not at all. He's pretty modest about it all. In a sort of as most scientific men and indeed women are at the time, in that he is, as you said very beautifully, I thought in your introduction, he he's he's trying it out. You know, let's mm. see. Let's run this flag up the flagpole and see if it flies. If it doesn't, never mind. Let's find another one. An extraordinary, extraordinarily Catholic in his yes. in where he drew his yes, research from. Absolutely. So you have him. Uh, Drying frog spawn yes. on uh, sticky yes, labels around his house. <laughs> you know, I thought my husband was bad, but you know. <laughs> but you have that next to his his um, his use of poetry and literature. Yes, which is very important to him. How actually. does that How does that work into? Well, his... for me, I'm actually a literary scholar, so I'm very interested in this. Um, he's a voracious reader of quite trashy novels. He loves Trollope. He loves Gaskell, <laughs> um, and I think that's really important. I think narrative is really important to him, and he spends his. This is something I think we've lost now, perhaps in our in our very kind of techno modern world. Um, the idea idea that actually science is also about writing stories it's also yeah. about <coughs> hypothesizing and that's also, that's really about creating fictions and and sort of thinking of possibilities and and using your imagination to think you know how far can i think Gillian Beer wrote a very good book oh, about this. Oh, I didn't? love that book. Yeah, it's a great book. That kind of made me oh, do my PhD, plots. that book. Actually. Really? Yeah, that was a really important book. And that's book the idea me. of meta, and that's basically how science and, um, uses metaphor and literature uses yes. metaphor, and the two sort of fuse yes. together. Yes, she's really interested in the tangled bank metaphor. Yeah. And actually, I think, sort of in my field, that's that's moved on now, and uh, and, and we're all obsessed with network theory now, so it's all Bruno Latour now down at my house. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think that's in a way that I, I see Darwin as he's, he's preempting, in a sense, or at least sort of a precursor to thinking about these linked. Linked up complex systems, which are global. It struck me that the problem with Darwin is if you if you slightly misread him and you believe in the sort of survival of the fittest and you believe in sort of the butch strongness that comes mm-hmm. from that, you effectively then you end up with the horrible world of social mm-hmm. Darwinism, which is we should crush the weak, yep. we should let the strong survive. It's kind of yep. it's, tailspin to the Nuremberg yes. trials, yeah, exactly. and, and Ayn Rand and all of that yes. stuff. Does Wilson make the mistake of kind of saying? Darwin is the font of that and therefore is consciously responsible. He does say that, which is the most shocking bit in the book, I think, actually, where he sort of conflates Nazism with Darwinism in a way that is just a bit irresponsible, I think. I mean, there's a very complicated argument um, to be had there, and it it is being, I mean, there's some good books out there, actually, about why Darwin is not a Nazi, as it were, or not a precursor to the Nazis. But eugenics requires Darwinism, presumably, at some point. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah, and in fact, Francis Galton, who was Darwin's cousin, was one of the first eugenicists um, who was very interested in eugenics um on the on the cusp of it becoming that very dark thing it then became but i think one of the things that wilson doesn't quite get right is that darwin is not interested in sort of racial supremacy he's not interested he's interested in species he's interested in vast swathes of time he's interested in how we've developed from the beginning of time he's not interested in in the idea of 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 sort of the present moment being competitive in a battle. Tell us about Philip Lieberman's book, The Theory That oh, yes, Changed that's Everything. That's a strange book. Yeah, uh, can we forgive him for writing a chapter about what Darwin mm. might think about global warming? Well, actually, strangely, in the end, I did because the rest of the book is rather charming. So it? It, that's a terrible chapter, and it, somebody really should—he should have had a John Murray there saying, <laughs> "I don't think so, dear." Why don't you? Why don't you? Because you, you say he, he, he says that Darwin would have been a presence on the internet, which is annoying. Yes. Uh, why, why don't you like that chapter? Well, it's the presentism problem, isn't it? I think it's—you know—in a way, it's the A. N. Wilson problem as well. It's like don't judge Darwin through your own rather silly trivial lens of now Um, let's think about Darwin let's think about I mean what's far more serious and impressive about Darwin is the way that Darwin's struggling with his own moment and his own moment is a difficult moment Um, and it's back to that thing about you know he's trying to think beyond the kind of culture and, and trying to imagine possibilities that the Victorian culture he's living in doesn't really allow. And Wilson wants to undervalue that, doesn't he? He effectively yes. wants to say there's loads of people doing yeah. very similar things yep. to Darwin. But but fundamentally, reading your piece and reading Darwin himself, you're kind of overwhelmed by the sense of a, of a genius who has fundamentally shifted the world. I mean, virtually... Yeah, um, to I don't know cost- about the word genius. I'm always oh, really? okay. About okay, but, uh, but I know I, I agree with you. I think there's a sort of multiplicity and and a, and a kind of um, well, actually, I think probably quite a, a, an obsessiveness actually, which I think all good researchers have to have. I, mere culpa, I'm sure I have it too. Yeah. I mean, you have to be driven by something a little bit irrational to to, to go this far. 
and to keep going and, and to keep going and to keep going. And it was a long career, your your yeah your, your yeah, with lots of different parts. So you know, he's he goes crazy about things. He has phases. He has an orchid phase. He has a barnacle phase. He, you know, <laughs> don't we all? Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. Have you had a barnacle? Yeah, yeah, still 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 Claire, you end with this quotation, which I think is really symptomatic of of him. However much I may have blundered, I have done my best, and that is my greatest comfort. And there's a sort of is there a humility about Darwin? Or was he was he conscious of? I think it's a flip flop. He's he, he is there is a humility, but there's also a massive arrogance. I mean, Aaron Wilson's right about that. I think there's a kind of egomania in some ways, which I'm afraid you know, having met a few very brilliant people, I think goes with the territory yeah. really. Um, and again, it's that drive that perhaps without that you can't you can't push those projects through to completion, despite all his terrible problems with tummy ache and flatulence, and he was farting a lot, Darwin always, it really? seems. Yeah. yeah. So that with the drying frog's eggs yeah, and the yeah. farting, it must have yeah. been quite and hard for Emma, I think. Yeah, and um, but, uh, sorry, I've now forgotten the question. What were you asking no, me? No, that was good. <laughs> the humility <laughs> of Darwin. Oh, yeah. And you've now humbled him. You've now well, totally humbled I him. I think he was, well, he was physically humbled by yeah. his body, as yeah. we all are, let's face it, <laughs> in the end. And, and But I think also there was, yeah, it was, it was, he goes, I mean, when you read me back that quote just now, I thought, hmm, it's it's a funny quote, isn't it? Because it's sort of saying, "I have done my best," and you know that's that that's a great comfort. But it sort of it sort of belies itself. I yeah. think there's a sort of there's a sort of um, wistfulness about it. Our relationship to people like Darwin and these books kind of realise. So Philip Lieberman wants to say he'd be great on Twitter. A. <laughs> M. Wilson wants to say he's an evil Nazi. Yeah. It, will it always be thus that with 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 figures of major figures question. we're always trying to reshape them to our own times or are we always trying to to debunk them is that the right approach do you think because you read four you read four books yes. was, was, was there a book that didn't do that there are two books actually i think evelyn richards and james costa are both pretty good on that count um evelyn richards is a is a professional i mean she's been working on this stuff all her life she's an academic but she's an academic who can write which is a rare kind of academic. Oh, hooray. i really enjoyed her but when it arrived i have to say it came in the post in a very large parcel on my heart rather sank but actually i raced through it pretty fast it's it's a readable readable tome it's a good sign um, and she is absolutely fantastic in her scrupulousness about what she what she allows into the book so she's very careful to keep Darwin in his time and keep in mind all the time exactly where we are decade by decade and what it what's going on around him what he's looking at what he's thinking you know so there's a real carefulness there Costa's different because it's a much more popular book but I really liked it and I feel a bit sad actually that I didn't give it that much well, space you, in the end because I didn't have I, I was already over length you were taking um, down A.M. Wilson and I had to take down A.M. Wilson yeah, yeah. I had a lot of my hands <laughs> um, but, but Costa I think is, is, is really Darwin's Backyard a rather book, lovely yeah. book it's a book that I would um, give to a 11, 12 year old I think really it's beautifully written for it's Christmas very good Christmas yeah, book great for Christmas book yeah. and, he, and he gives you it's a bit like those wonderful I've been going through a bit of a phase recently of reading um Greedy sort of eating books like wonderful um, M.K. Fisher and oh, yeah, no. consider the oyster. Yeah, I yeah, love the, this is the, is I've really just yeah. discovered them. Um, the gastronomical me, yeah. edited in fact by B. Wilson, who mm-hmm. is M. Wilson's daughter. Yeah. Oh, I think there's something in the Costa which is a little bit like those food books. So he gives kind of experiments. He shows you how to do them. So you know how you get recipes sometimes in mm-hmm. M.K. Fisher or whatever. He does that. So he gives you a very nice sort of potted version of the theory. Then he gives an experiment you can do in your back garden. It's all about Darwin doing all his experiments at Down House in his garden and his sitting room and, you know. So it's rather wonderful. It's about domestic science in the true true sense. I'll tell you, why don't we leave it there on a recommendation for a Christmas present for a a clever, kind of like a a clever child. Slightly geeky child. Slightly geeky child. We we all know some, don't we? Yeah, we we all worth some, I I suspect. Uh, James T. Costa is Darwin's backyard. Buy that for the geek in your life. Claire Pettit, thank you so much for coming in. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Claire Pettit, Naomi Wolf, and Dinah Birch. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper, which is full of good stuff, including a guide to the Reformation and a review of tennis in popular culture. You will love all of it. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's bad. It's very bad. Next week, it's the last TLS of the year. Hooray! Do you need a rest? Yeah, I do. I, do. I, feel, I, feel, I feel like I'm a little warm thin. Uh, we're going to be joined by our lovely colleagues Lucy and Toby for much mockery and an attempt to define our arts experiences of the year. Thea, are you ready for that? <laughs> I like how you say an attempt to define. Well, I, I'm, just, I'm just interested in knowing how many arts experiences we've all had. I'm sure we've had plenty. I'm sure we'll be conjuring More than up. enough. More than enough. You won't want to miss uh, this. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.